Today, I've received a fixed penalty notice from the Metropolitan Police. I understand the anger that many will feel that I myself fell short. My thoughts are with all of those who did the right thing. This is a real slap in the face. It is quite clear that the mayor no longer has sufficient confidence in my leadership. I want to be clear, very clear. Putin's goal is to undermine and destroy democracy. Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. If we do not have the capacity to distinguish what's true from what's false, then by definition the marketplace of ideas doesn't work and by definition our democracy doesn't work. That's what Barack Obama told The Atlantic magazine in 2020. He says we are entering into a crisis of epistemology because we don't know what's fact and what's fiction anymore. So are we living in a post-truth world? I'm Claire Preecy. Here to talk about this with me is Professor of Political Rhetoric Alan Finlayson and uh, Dr Sally Broughton Mitsova who lectures in communication policy and politics also Dr Maria Serban who's a lecturer in philosophy all here from UEA so let's try and get a handle on this problem first of all does Barack Obama have a point Alan what do you think he definitely has a point in as much as he's indicating the presence of a problem there's clearly some kind of confusion around about how to respond to political issues how to understand them how to make our arguments how to really know what's going on so that we can say things we think are meaningful about political life so there's some problem there whether he's characterized that problem in the right way well we're going to find out Sally what do you think the the fundamental issue here for me is that the marketplace of ideas never did work um, it, it isn't the job of markets to ensure that democracy functions. <laughs> and when you reduce your media ecology to a marketplace, then it isn't necessarily going to serve up what people need for democracy, what citizens need in order to be informed, which is why in Europe we have a rather different approach that's funded in founded in public interest concepts and various obligations and public service media. Um, so there was a, a, a sort of a problematic starting point from the marketplace of ideas. But yes, it, it doesn't work. It never did. Um, whether there's an epistemological crisis, I'm not I'm not sure. OK, let's ask our, our philosopher in, in, in the house today, Maria Saban, is there an epistemological crisis, a, tr- a crisis about what we know, what we believe, what we understand to be true? We as philosophers, we thrive on there being epistemological crises all the time. So <laughs> I think it's good news if there is one. Although I would disagree with the fact that the crisis is about the fact that we don't know what's false and what's truth. I mean, um, I think we, we do have institutions, we have collectives that think hard about, you know, how do you establish that something is a fact? How do you establish that something is kind of misinformation or kind of miscommunication? So um, I think more kind of the issue is here that we can lost track of what are these standards for truth and falsehood. Um, and we have lost track because we are not good as a sort of general <laughs> social society communicating them. And that points to me at a more interesting in a way kind of epistemological crisis, one of trust which I think is kind of more pertinent for the sort of political social domain is not so much that the facts aren't there, is the fact like who uses them, how are they used. Um, so for, for philosophers, truth has always been the sort of normative sort of notion in which, you know, you have to know what to look for, you know, have to know what are the standards are. Um, and those standards can be misused. And if they are misused, they do lead to this sort of crisis of trust. And trustworthiness seems to me is a sort of interesting sort of um, 
kind of notion to think about if we are to kind of talk about what politicians are doing and what kind of media, social and otherwise, is, is doing with the information and with the facts. There's a lot of talk, isn't there, about about trust in, in political mm-hmm. life, Alan, at the moment. And we see this a lot with our questioning of the Prime Minister about the, the, the lockdown parties and him being asked straight up today, are you honest? Are you truthful? Do you think people have lost trust in their politicians? And, and does it stem from a particular point, say the expenses scandal? Or has it just been like that forever? Yes, I think just to go slightly back to something Maria said to answer this question, I think Maria makes a very good point about the nature of the, the so-called epistemological crisis that's going on. Because at one level, there is no crisis. We don't. We know perfectly well that climate change is happening and we know why and how it's happening. We know there's no question about most of what's going on in Ukraine and who's committing what atrocities on who. There actually isn't any crisis about that. What there is, is anxiety, uncertainty, fear, as well, of what people are doing with this information, what policies they're creating and how those policies might affect people. And that's what people are questioning and are querying. Now, the problem is that the way in which that questioning is taking place has shifted from being focused on the issue, the question, what is a sensible policy response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? How do we balance the positives and negatives of reducing rapidly our dependence on on fossil fuels? Debating those questions shifted to the personality and character of the politicians. Do we like them as well as do we trust them? Do we believe them? Do we think they care about us? Do we think they're on our side or not? And that's coming out of a much longer process in which our politics has become focused on personalities and on individuals and on what they are like and on how they embody some idea or some social group rather than parties, mass movements, and the policies that might represent their interests. So I I actually wanted to comment a bit on that and the fact that this sort of shift in discourse, we see more and more kind of questions about, um, you know, truth and facts kind of get um, less air than questions about how do you feel about this fact? You know, what is your impression? What's your kind of gut reaction about this? So the fact that kind of the information is presented in a heavily emotive language also affects, you know, how we process it. And it's like, so all of a sudden, it's not about us checking, you know, who is the source of evidence. Um, It's about, it's like, oh, should I trust this person or should I kind of believe it? So it seems to be kind of our kind of emotive brain, if I'm going to go in my cognitive science, is kind of reacting first. And then it kind of helps us process all this other information. And sometimes we're going to select too much kind of um, uh, overload of information and we're going to kind of just select it emotively and we're going to kind of pick up on the information from the people we trust or from the people we like, from the people we know or from the people that look like us. And then we get these sort of things. And and is this not, this is partly a question for Sally, is this about not just a change in the politicians and how they behave and how they present themselves and not just a change in the electorate, but also a change in the ways in which political stories are reported, that that they, as they become constructed more as perhaps a kind of entertainment, a way to attract audiences, and in this sense, to get back to Sally's original point, competing in a marketplace for attention and for viewers, there's a drive in the reporting to make it more entertaining, more personality-driven, to heighten the drama, to heighten the divisions of personality between people, rather than to deepen the ways in which we think about the actual problems. Is that a fair challenge, Sally? 
I, I think that is a fair challenge and there's a whole body of communications research that has been looking into this and the, the mediatization of politics and it isn't just in the way the media cover things but also in the way the politicians use the tools of PR and everything but certainly in relation to the Ukraine crisis I keep finding myself looking at how it's covered even by media that I trust and thinking this is not a bloody football match right <laughs> you know we're not cheering here for there's a there's a massive crisis here people are dying people are suffering in ukraine people are suffering in russia we're not hearing a whole the whole picture of a lot of things and um what you know what we have is also a situation where different people are getting the same information yes we know that you know this many thousands of people are stuck in one city in Ukraine, that this many people have been are, are known already to have been killed, etc. But some people look at that and think that was that's necessary <laughs> because for this reason. And other people are looking at this saying this is an abominable thing that has to be stopped. And that comes from a lot of the you know the whole whole worldview and to some extent who they who they trust and and what they think is necessary. The same with climate change. This and this is happening. Some people looking at that same information and see that, you know, therefore this and this and this has to be done about it. Other people with a completely different worldview or context are, are assuming something else needs to be done about it. Um, and and so, what? but what we're missing a lot of is getting at the discussions that are grounded in norms, values, and, you know, identity, <laughs> you know, that are giving people their different opinions on those same pieces of information. We're not getting to those kinds of discussions, it seems. I don't, I don't have evidence to say that we used to do that better, <laughs> necessarily, but we're certainly not doing it now. Well, as, as you've raised Ukraine, let's hear from somebody who's been living there. Uh, Yevgenia Subotina is a Ukrainian UEA graduate. She spoke to us a few weeks ago from her parents' home in Dnipro. She talked about the challenges being faced by Ukrainian citizens in what some people are calling the information war. Some even journalists from Ukraine saying that it is information war, it is hybrid war. Almost everyone, I would say, in Ukraine is in the role of the journalist, because they are spreading information, they are shooting videos from their hometowns and sharing in the internet. Frankly speaking, it's not that easy to check all the information which are uh, which are flows from different social media, from especially in Telegram, Ukrainian. Many people in Ukraine use in Telegram. So journalists, the uh, role of the journalists and maybe the role of every citizen of, of, from Ukraine is very important right now uh, to sharing only um, checked and uh, trusted uh, sources of information. So Yuvenia makes a really interesting point for me as somebody who teaches journalism that, you know, pre-social media, what we would do as actors, as journalists, we would be those gatekeepers. So we would be making those decisions about what stories to run, who to interview, what angles to do. Nowadays, this information is everywhere and we are less gatekeeping as more gate watching. We're following what's happening. We're looking at trends. Um, and actually, it becomes um, incumbent on everybody to be part of that 
process of understanding how information is used. What have you all noticed about how social media has changed this uh, this situation over the last 10 years or so? Social media now has already been around for almost all that 10 years. We've seen it spreading, but there is ample evidence that shows that that novelty, which is often something that is going against the mainstream discourse or that is somehow new, that, that essentially that false information spreads more quickly and more broadly than quote-unquote truth, um, largely because it's novel, right? Because it isn't something that people are getting on their mainstream news. So, so we do have this, you know, well-evidenced now tendency for false information to be spreading more quickly and to be spreading very widely, whereas in the past we probably didn't have these kinds of vehicles quite so much for spreading conspiracy theories or, you know, completely false information, particularly defamatory information. Yes, I think that's, I think what Sally says is, is, is right and important. Social media is a very double-edged sword in this sort of context. On the one hand, it's really helpful and beneficial that we can get direct information, footage of people's experiences in cities that are being bombed or the people in places where they don't have easy access to democratic outlets for communication, can again use the internet to bring out their experiences and let people know what's what's going on. It also creates, as Sally says, a new kind of theatre of, of conflict, a new theatre of war, which some states have invested in very heavily, ways in which you can distract, deflect, confuse and muddy the picture, not quite so much successfully get your lies to land, but make the picture seem sufficiently unclear and sufficiently muddy that people decide they don't really know what to think. And I think part of what is going on here is that uh, social media is showing us that the adage that facts speak for themselves uh, is not true. <laughs> It never really was. Facts don't speak for themselves. They have to be in some kind of a context, arranged in some kind of a way that enables us to see what it is that's going on and to understand it. And one of the things that the digital communication does is firstly, it overloads us with facts, images of this thing that happened here, pictures of this data about this, that and the other. That's the first problem. But also it often then presents that information removed from a context we can't really, we, we can know that Russia moved tanks into Ukraine. What does that mean and what's that about is not clear without some other facts and the context about that, about what's going on. But then the internet also allows another thing, which is a bit novel, is it makes it really easy for you to take a fact out of its context and put it in another one and make it do something else for you. And that's part of the problem. You can extract a quote from, from one place and use it in a different context that gives it a different meaning and makes it seem like someone was saying something very dubious or subtle or that sparks our hostile kinds of reactions. You can, as we found out very recently, take a picture of the leader of the opposition having a curry with somebody a few years ago, stick it on a page in a newspaper and make it appear that he was doing it more recently. You're recontextualizing this information all the time. And a lot of conflict online is always about that. It's about people taking a quote or a saying or a phrase or a line or a fact and replacing it into a different context. And that again muddies people's understanding. But the problem there isn't so much the facts, it's the, it's, the, it's the understanding that we're able to bring to it that means we can make sense of what that fact actually tells us. Is there a problem here, Maria, with sort of that, that with what people believe? 
Yeah, so it's it's not so much about about trust and truth, but also about belief. So if I believe that Keir Starmer is a uh, as somebody who has a curry when he shouldn't be having a curry, then I'm going to find whatever evidence that I can to back that up. Yeah, and I think another issue, kind of just tying in with Alan's saying, is that kind of this type of influx of information via the social media makes people not feel responsible for their what they are trying to communicate, taking almost zero responsibility for putting something out there because the general narrative is like I'm presenting facts, a kind of information, snippets of the world out there, how it really is. And this applies to even kind of, you know, taking a snippet of one member of parliament taking a curry or uh, taking a photograph with you and your girlfriend with weapons ready to fight for Ukraine. And that's going to so what sort of picture are you sending about the war in Ukraine by promoting on social media that type of picture? It, it has had very different sort of reactions from different type of audience. But the persons putting it out there are not kind of considering this is we are kind of trying to determine people to have these opinions or these beliefs. I think there is not that sort of level of engagement because they're not kind of journalists that kind of have to think through the process of communicating information and of kind of providing context or selecting context in such a way so that kind of um, you get like I, I suppose very often um, kind of information is presented as opposed to we have to kind of form beliefs on the basis of information but very often we don't form beliefs we form this sort of emotional reactions to this information other times we do form beliefs and other times we form desires to act in certain ways so you get on so on ukrainian social media certain types of images and then you want to go and fight even if you have a family so all of a sudden you don't care about your kids dying in ukraine so you're not going to look for an escape out you just want to be part of that movement and again people presenting information this is what's happening this is what bravery is in war they do not take responsibility um considering that this might affect the lives of people in that so i think yes beliefs are important and information and truth both determine with belief we form but i think we kind of lose track of the fact that because there is so much Sometimes we just bypass forming beliefs and we just have these sorts of reactions and then actions based on them. And social media seems to have, and you see this not only with words, but we see this with teenagers, you know, kind of, I have to wear this because all my friends wear this and they don't stop to think why. It's like, is this something that I even like? So there seems to be a lot of information over social media that triggers these other things besides beliefs, which are quite important for social dynamics and for what we see as happening. I think, Social media has been shown by people who study activism to be very good yeah. at, at getting people activated. It is a good mobilizing tool. And in political campaigning, it has been very much used as a mobilizing tool. But when we're talking about you know, people who are supposed to be making informed decisions in order to vote, in order to support a government policy or not, and you know, in the service of democracy, that the role of the media isn't just mobilizing where we need people to be also reflecting and i think that what we have is a bit too much focus on a battle between facts <laughs> and determining whether something is true or not and not enough reflection on okay what is what is happening with that information and in terms of the media um in what is the actual story right? Not what is the fact, but what is the narrative? What is the story here? What is the history, you know, behind all of this? We, we, we lack 
we like explanation, we like context a lot of the time, uh, and fact on its own <laughs> is usually not enough. Yeah, I think you're right, Sally. I think as journalists, we need to get a lot better at doing that, at giving that context. I see a lot more of it coming up now in terms of uh, backgrounders and um, fact-checking pieces. But I think uh, in terms of helping the audience and helping readers and listeners and viewers to understand the background to these things is is really key. Let's have a, a think about another situation where misinformation, disinformation caused um, quite a big shock. Um, we spoke earlier as a, as a group of journalism students, we spoke earlier in the year to the ITV Washington correspondent, Robert Moore. Um, and he was telling us about his experience of uh, the storming of the Capitol building. He was one of the few reporters who went inside and filmed on the ground um, on the 6th of January 2021. 20, uh, he said what was striking then, as, as is for him now, was the conviction of the protesters that they were absolutely in the right. The, the protesters, the would-be insurrectionists, if you want to use that term, uh, the mob, they had no sense of doing anything wrong at all. Uh, many of them, particularly those I was with, and I was with a group of people I've followed up with and have spoken to in various documentaries about why they were there. They actually felt that they were patriots in, in the true sense. They felt they were saving uh, democracy from a, from, the, uh, from a coup. They didn't see themselves as a part of a coup. They thought the coup had happened, namely on election day, on November the 3rd. They thought the election had been stolen from them. So, you know, what is incredibly striking, you know, obviously to us, in a, through the prism through which we see January the 6th, it's absurd what, what they feel. But what you cannot doubt is the authenticity of their feeling. They genuinely felt that they were acting in a patriotic manner and that they were trying to right a wrong, the stolen election of November the 3rd. Um, and the depth of their feeling is a story all unto itself. It's a story about the, the sort of rabbit holes of conspiracy theories that have gripped large sections of the political right here. So it's a really interesting one, that, isn't it? I mean, that's that moment in history when the storming of the Capitol happened and actually really bringing together all of those large groups of, of people who felt really uh, that the election had been stolen from them. And they believe very strongly what they'd read online, what they'd read on, on social media. Were you surprised it happened? Uh, no, I was not surprised it happened because it was being talked about and planned for for weeks before online and I watched them doing it. Um, so it was entirely expected. Um, but I think it is an absolutely uh, significant example of what we're talking about and of some of the complexities in it. And it's interesting that the reporter there talked about the authenticity of the feelings of the people who were engaged in the, in, in, in the right there. Because, as you we were saying a minute ago, a lot of facts appear if we haven't got a context for making sense of them. So that means then there is a space for people who can provide context, who can tell you a story about what those facts mean. And the internet, particularly platforms like YouTube, are extremely efficient mechanisms for people of all kinds to find a platform to say, you know, you're a bit confused. I'll explain it to you. I'll tell you what's really going on. So what happens is that our politics is is suffering not so much from misinformation, but from the provision of very rich, deep, complicated and entirely mythical contexts that provide explanations of these events for people. So the people who to, went, who broke into the Capitol Hill building uh, believe that not only had the election been stolen by Donald Trump's enemies, but that those enemies were part of a much larger, ongoing, long-term plot to subvert American democracy, to 
uh, abuse in an organized way and to kidnap and abuse children. They believe that very, very deeply. Um, and that Donald Trump was about to expose those people, and that's why they'd stage this coup against him. Now, that's a very powerful mythology that animated and organized people's behavior. And as he says, you can see, if you really believe that, that's maybe the kind of thing that you would do. So the question we have to ask as analysts of all this is not quite the epistemological one or the marketplace of ideas, but what is it that means that people are now lacking any kind of common framework for making sense of these facts and events, that they're then jumping to these very heightened, mythical, dramatic kinds of stories that they can then identify with? And the answer to that question would be quite uncomfortable because we would have to see that before the internet and before the rise of Trump, politics was already getting made rather mythical. Political parties and movements were already throwing out these dramatic stories of, of amazing change that would come about, but also dark enemies. It was already present and defining our politics. That's a big part of it. But also that something's happened at a much deeper level socially that we don't really feel parts of convincing national stories anymore. We don't really feel that as British people, we're collectively trying to do something that would be to the benefit of us and maybe other people. Americans don't feel that they have a common framework that shapes and guides where they're going and what they're thinking. So quite deep things have occurred in our culture and something like the Capitol Hill riot is a manifestation of that or a manifestation of people trying to make sense of the world which is not making sense for them. And that's about a lot more than just media and politics and misinformation. Sally, you've thought about this, haven't you? And the, the, the freedom of speech element in America is so important, but yet at the same time, it's created a huge amount of problems for society. I wouldn't say it's, it's created a huge amount of problems for society. Um, freedom of speech is fundamentally important and yes the the american first amendment tradition is quite you know absolutist at least that body of thinking about it that has been dominant so far but freedom of speech is important and freedom of speech doesn't require the information to be true when it comes to disinformation and and there are distinctions here disinformation is has a malintent right and the council of europe's um you know, establish these different categories of of what what um, has been called the information disorder. You know, misinformation is it's wrong. Perhaps disinformation has malintent, and we do have people who are manipulating and who are doing things with malintent, and we do have categories of you know, unprotected speech, according to international covenant, you know, international law, those are incitement to violence, <laughs> incitement to hatred, right? And a lot of disinformation that we are concerned about, you know, in terms of those of us who are looking at the state of democracy, falls into those categories. A lot of what we see going on now with the Ukraine situation, and I, I've been, been working in some of the surrounding countries that are particularly concerned about this, um, we have what could easily be classified as propaganda in war, which is also an illegal form of speech. It is not a protected form of speech. And so perhaps we need to be thinking about, you know, what is the definition of war now in a hybrid situation? Perhaps we need to draw a longer line between speech and violence to determine incitement. We might have to see where there's sort of more longer term speech in a, you know, in, in a, in a malicious intent that actually leads to incitement to violence. But um, but we have these categories of unprotected 
speech for a reason. <laughs> um, and that is because freedom of speech, you know, isn't an absolute right. <laughs> you know, it is fundamentally very important, but it is also um, a right that is balanced against things. And um, we have these categories in order to help us do that balancing. So I suppose the big question is, what do we do about all of this? And this is something that Obama and various others are sort of grappling with. How much um, control do we need to have over social media? How much um, influence do we allow it to have? What, what, what Are there any possible ways forward for us to think about improving this situation? Well, there's a lot of thought going in and we have some laws on the table. So within Europe, we have Digital Services Act, which will hold very large online platforms accountable for assessing their risk that they bring to democracy, among other things, um, the integrity of elections and things like that. Um, in the UK, the online safety bill would go even much further <laughs> um, in a rather worrying way, I would say. Um you know, we have to make sure that it isn't just about giving the power to the platforms to decide what is truth and what is not truth or what story needs to be told and who gets to speak. We need to be sure that any of those processes are widely inclusive, <laughs> that there are lots of checks and balances and a lot of transparency in terms of what's being done, you know, and fundamentally that we're not removing responsibility from the generators of the content you know so we have malicious actors out there who are using platforms like youtube in order to do something that um that is undermining election integrity or that is inciting violence or inciting hatred and and so you know in the end there are people who need to be held responsible and perhaps the platform's systems if they're doing effective risk assessment and putting measures in place can help make that happen can help reduce their influence can help identify them etc but um you know we can't give the platforms too much power and at the same time we need to hold them responsible for um, managing this space better and we also need to you know hold we can't we can't remove them from responsibility either maria what would you like to see change to improve the situation or is that an impossible question no i actually think that you know this might be a bit romantic <laughs> um, but i actually think sort of the type of uh, general sort of education of what it is to be part of a democracy plays a role because it's kind of sure we we need to see these sort of issues as kind of structural issues we need to come up with laws we need to frameworks for thinking about this but we also need to educate the citizens um, individuals need to be responsible for what they are putting out there and um, I'm I, I've been kind of in, in my teaching like sometimes if I give them a creative project and I say okay you have to express your views on veganism or your views on on anti-vaccination, when it's about that, um, they, they become very aware that um, they're going to express their views and they're going to be held accountable. But when they kind of comment or kind of forward things on uh, uh, social media platforms, they don't have the same responsibility. So kind of just talking to our young ones, as it were, and among ourselves, what it is to take responsibility and for which sort of content we content we do have responsibility i think it's part of the big puzzle it's not something that's going to change overnight but if we give up on that if we give up on kind of making individuals aware of their own responsibilities and we think only about the structural level um you know i i'm not sure the pieces of the puzzle and the progress is is, is likely going going to happen <laughs>
Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Sally and Maria say. I think what I'd like to add is that I think that a lot of the problems, the faults are in ourselves and not in the stars, that people in politics and in media need to perhaps wake up a little bit and realise what's happening. I find that when I talk to mainstream politicians and people who work in the, uh, the, the larger media outlets, they still think of things that are happening on YouTube and Reddit and social media platforms there's a bit of an odd new thing that's kind of coming up in our awareness a bit out of the mainstream. They don't realise that official politics, Westminster politics in this country, Washington politics, classic news media, New York Times, The Guardian, so forth, these are not the mainstream. These are minority forms of media paid attention to by a minority of people. The mainstream is online. That is where the action is happening. And those old forms of politics are not there on, online. My, my common example of this is I can I could show you, without even thinking, 10, 15 British-based political YouTubers with millions of followers. The Labour Party on YouTube has 39,500 followers. The Conservative Party has just over 65,000 last time I checked. They are nowhere on that platform. That is the most watched video platform in the world Anyone who wants to know, or most people, particularly under 40, who want to know about news, opinion, political ideas, will go on YouTube first, and they will not find the mainstream British politicians there. So one, they have to actually participate in this arena, not just, not only, they should regulate it, but not only regulate it, and not wish it away, and not think it's not important. And then they also have to think about the fact that one reason people are looking for these other stories, other solutions, is because at some significant level, politics is not doing what it's supposed to do. We're anxious about climate change. It's not clear what the government is going to be doing about it. And at the moment, we're discussing people's parties and curries. And while that's important, in the midst of a largest cost of living crisis for a generation and the trauma that's going to inflict on people at the end of this year, that's not really being discussed. And I don't know what the party's solutions are to that. Until they start doing politics better, it isn't. It's just going to get worse. All right. Thank you, Alan. And thank you to our guests, Dr. Sally Broughton, Mitsilva, Dr. Maria Saban. Thanks also to the BBC, ITV, Guardian and Robert Moore, of course, for our news clips. Additional reporting on this episode was by Paris, Mabin, Hume. And if all goes well, our next podcast will be looking more about the war in Ukraine and what it means for global politics and security. So do try and join us next time. Thank you for listening. <laughs>